0: We were in Exodus three, uh, not too far back, and uh, we 've been going through Exodus for those of you that are visitors and in Exodus three, God is having a conversation, an argument with Moses because Moses doesn 't want anything to do with going to the Pharaoh, and God is uh, pretty sure he 's going to do it, and he ends up doing it and so God is they're going back and forth and they're arguing, but one of the questions that Moses asks during the interchange is uh, sounds kind of strange to us today, but he says. Okay, well, if I go, they're going to ask me what your name is. What do I tell them? Now, why would, why would that be important? Well, the gods in, the, god, the ancient gods, none of them ever gave you their name. They just didn't. Uh, they, we had to name them. Well, we now know there weren't any other gods, but they, uh, but they didn't know that back then. And so he's speaking with God, and God has not given his name out yet. And he said, well, what am I supposed to say them, to them? And he gives them a very interesting response, a very intriguing response. He goes, I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am? That's your name? I think Zeus would be stronger. Really, I am? He goes, yeah, that's my name, I am. I am what? And that begins a journey theologically through the Bible that begins to raise all these questions of what does that mean that God is I am? I am what? Soon after this, we have the 10 plagues. So they've seen his power. And you may remember in Exodus 16, 17, and 18, rather than take them up along the coast road to the promised land, which is about a 10 or 11 day walk, he takes them instead of going up the Mediterranean, he takes them down southeast into the the Sinai wilderness, the desert. We've talked about a lot of reasons he took them out there. But one of them is they need to start asking a question that they didn't even know to ask. They never thought to ask the question, does this God care? Because the gods, that's not the way they thought. The gods were to just keep them happy, keep them out of our world. We don't want anything to do with them because we don't want them near us. So the ancient gods, no, they didn't care. They didn't think that way. And so God takes them out into the desert and begins to force them to wrestle with the question. For example, he takes them to places twice where there's no water. And they have to, of course, they grumble. That's okay. You guys all grumble. So they take them to places where they don't, they have, don't have their needs met. And they have to ask, what are we going to do? So God says, I'll take care of it. They took him to a place where there's no food. He protected them in a military sense and all kinds of places. So during those three chapters, 16, 17, and 18, he's over here in the desert. And he is forcing them to begin to ask the question, who's going to take care of us? And that God does that. Okay, so now for Lent, today is the first, first Sunday of Lent. So let me remind you what Lent is about, okay? We celebrate Advent and Lent. Advent at Christmas time is where we are looking forward eagerly with anticipation for the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. That's what Christmas is all about. Lent is that period of time where we stop and take a look at our mortality. Okay, it's not meant to be a downer. It's, it's an honest reflection of who we are independence with this one God, and honestly, that's hard for us to grasp, okay? We naturally want to put our confidence in our IRAs, our retirement funds, our big house, whatever it is that you have, that's where we tend to put our our confidence, and God is always inviting us and drawing us to place our confidence in Him more than in our things, so it's not, we are wired, we're created by God to trust Him, but we live in a broken world, and so we're trying to make sense of that. And we naturally clasp, grab on to, you know, what Ecclesiastes calls gr- grasping after the wind. It's empty. It may be pleasurable for just a moment, but it's empty in the long run. That new car, that big house, pretty soon it doesn't satisfy you the same as it did when you got it. And so God is in the business of inviting us into a deeper walk with him because that's actually what we're made for. Even if we don't believe it, we are. So what we're going to do in in John is we're going to look at the seven I am statements of Jesus, because Jesus begins to flesh out in words and invitation what God the Father um, was doing all through the Exodus account. He was meeting their needs. They didn't quite grasp to the level, the degree to which he's needing it, the depth, but um, that's what he was doing. And so Jesus puts that out there. I am today. I am the bread of life. What does that mean? So, you notice the graphic up there, I am, and you are invited. Every one of these I am statements is actually an invitation for you to draw deeper, to, to look away from the world and draw deeper spiritually into who the Lord is, because he is the one that can truly meet the deeper needs that we have and that we're created for. So, have you ever been hungry? I mean, truly hungry, let me see. Have you ever been to the place where if God doesn't step in, you're going to have to miss a meal? Oh, that's sad. Yeah, okay, here's one. I remember when my first wife was pregnant before she died, opening the fridge and there's nothing in the refrigerator. And just praying with tears, Lord, if you don't feed me, don't feed us, we won't eat tonight. And he did. So one of the problems we have today especially in the Western church, is that you're not hungry. You need to be hungry. Yeah, he was hungry after 40. I bet he was starving after 40 days, wasn't he? I know. We don't know what hunger is. And he's promises to take care of that hunger. and But the hunger that he's going to talk about here, and it's going to be all confusing to these Jews that he's talking to because they don't get it. And as we walk through it, it's probably gonna be a little confusing to you, okay? And when we get to communion, especially for those of you that come from a higher church, we're gonna get into the whole question of uh, flesh and blood because this is part of this whole discussion in John 6. And so one of the things that that we need to focus on is being hungry for the real thing. The hunger that we feel for for, for physical food is just an, an indication. It's a metaphor. It's a, it's a feeling to drive us into a deeper sense of we should be hungry. And we can cultivate that hunger. You have it whether you know it or not. But to recognize it, pull it to the surface and cultivate it, is a whole different, a different exercise. So he begins this with the feeding of the 5,000. You've heard the stories. Well, we're going to kind of put them all together a little bit because they all fit together in John 6. So he's feeding the 5,000, but um, in uh, John chapter 6, verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd, we learn a minute that it's 5,000, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this because he wanted to test him. He already knew what he's going to do. This is a test of Peter. So he wants to know where Peter's faith is. And of course, Peter responds appropriately, I have no idea (laughs) where we're going to get this kind of bread from, okay? So he puts them to the test, and so he feeds the 5,000, there's a miracle there, so you have the the miracle of taking care of their needs. So remember, these are poor people. We now know that the peasants in the Roman Empire, they were very, very poor, okay? They were. If you were to, and I've raised this question many times, if you were to want to bring down an empire, the Roman Empire, where would you start? We'd probably start with the big army, the senate, and the, the emperor and all that. But that's not where he started. He started right here with the poorest people that have nothing. Okay, we now know that their average lifespan was between 28 and 35. And uh, depending on where they were in the empire, they typically died with disease and terrible gum disease. So their breath would have smelled horrible. They were in pain. They didn't have what we have today. That's where he started he starts feeding the poor people and they're immediately grateful oh we got food to eat food to eat food to eat but they don't they miss the whole point of the story so the very next day he's on the other side of the lake and they they go around from capernaum to the other side of the lake to find him okay and so that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 26 so in verse 25 they found him on the other side of the lake and they said how did you where did you when did you get here and Julie, uh, Jesus instead of answering the question he does what he commonly does he instead deflects to a deeper problem because of the question is not the true question that they need to be asking. So here's Jesus' response. Very truly, I tell you, you you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs or the miracles I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. That's why. You just want the food. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him uh, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So right away, we have a very poor people that are primarily interested in food. This is much like the Exodus story in Exodus 16, what happened in 17 with the manna. So Jesus introduces a new kind of food, but what I want you to notice at this point in the story, for those of you that are remembering this grammar, he's talking in third person, not first person, okay? There is food. There is a son of man. God is going to do this. He's not mentioning himself at this point. And this becomes important in the story. And then he concludes this little thing. He says that the, uh, God the Father has placed a seal of approval on this son of man. We're not sure what that is, but it may very well be. This is, a, this is uh, just before Passover. They're moving toward Passover when this happens. At Passover, the, the priests would put their seal of approval on the lambs that they could sacrifice them for Passover. If that's the case, and this is an ominous statement, because as soon as the lambs received the seal of approval, right after that, they were sacrificed. So this could be a statement that he has received God's approval and he's soon going to become the sacrificial lamb. We don't know that for sure yet, but uh, that's uh, something that is uh, very enticing to me. So, So what do they reply with? <laughs> they reply... In verse uh, 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now, why would they jump from a bread that is eternal to works? Well, at this time in history, throughout the Jewish writings, they had already connected the bread that was supplied in Exodus, manna, with the giving of the law, because that's in 16 and 17, and in chapter 19 and 20 is where he introduces the law. So they had made the connection that the true bread that comes from heaven is, involves works. Now we have to do works, okay, to please God. So they had already made that connection, so they asked that question. So Jesus answers them in a very um, kind of interesting way. He says, the, uh, the work of God is this, is verse 29, to believe in the one who has sent. He has sent. Okay, now we just introduce something very different into the story. Belief, faith, Okay. And what we're about to learn is this is the heart. This is one of those passages that drives right to the heart of our Christian theology, faith. Okay, if I, had, if I had all of the time in the world, I could not convince you to believe in Jesus. It's not possible because it's by faith. It's not by proof. It's not by evidence. I could present a lot of data. I mean, that's my training. I could do that. Many years ago, uh, 30-something years ago, we were in Germany with uh, one of my friends, who's now one of my very dearest friends, but we were doing a Bible study with a bunch of military people in Darmstadt, Germany, and so he, um, uh, he, had, he, he liked this girl who was in the Bible study, kept him on to date her, she didn't want anything to do with him. So she said, okay, come on, you can go with me. So he, she picks him up on Friday, he says, where are we going? We're going to a Bible study. We're doing what? We're going to a Bible study. How long are we going to stay there? All weekend. And they stayed all weekend. So he made it his mission to tackle me, okay? This is a guy with a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering. Brilliant guy. A brilliant guy. He's an officer. And he, he took it upon himself to pin me to every corner he could find. And so he asked me question after question after question. So two or three in the morning, we finally quit. We comes back the next week, and the next week, and the next week, and the next. He comes back six weeks in a row. And about the sixth week, he's pinning me down. He's attempting to do that. And I'm just laughing my head off. And after about five or six hours of more of these questions this e2 that's one of the lowest enlisted guys said sir give it up you're the believer you don't he's not going to persuade you or convince you into the kingdom and, and my friend he said yeah that's that's true i guess i believe we've been friends ever since i married him I own his children, you know, things like that. So, uh, dear friends, he comes out and visits us regularly. You can't convince somebody, and Jesus just introduces. It had already been brought up earlier when he's talking to Nicodemus. For God loved the world so much that whoever, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him, not proves it, whoever has faith shall not perish. And now he's driving deeper into this whole concept. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in wilderness. In the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're still connecting this food with their life. And as I said a minute ago, they brought up the works of the law. They're connecting this food that they got with obedience. Okay, obedience is important. Don't hear me, don't hear me wrong. It's important. But Jesus is driving something below that. He wants them to get that there's a much deeper need that their, his, their descendants failed to understand, and they didn't understand. So they're going to be confused all throughout this story, okay? And Jesus is going to stun them several times and actually be scandalous. So Jesus responds, he clarifies it. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. Okay? Um, They want to know who who are you? They just asked the question what are the signs so that we can believe you? We saw the sign with Moses, so we trusted Moses. And he said, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you this true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's still third person. It's out here, okay, which is where their minds were. This is the law. Moses brought it. Manna came. He hasn't identified yet who it is, and he's about to stun them. He stuns them because he switches to the first person. So they said in verse 34, give us this bread. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread. I can't even begin to imagine the confusion and how stunning this is in their world. I am the bread. So he's beginning to answer the question I am what? That was God's name I am. And Jesus is beginning to flesh it out. And we're going to see this over the next several weeks. I am the bread of life. He goes on, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whether you know it or not, you are hungry and you are thirsty. Whether you know it. That's why I've asked over the years, is your confidence in the Lord or is it in your IRA, your pension? Is your satisfaction and your your feeling of self-worth is it in the Lord, or is it in your big house, or whatever you happen to have? Those things aren't wrong, by the way. I'm never going to say that. But where is it? Where is it? And he's giving us right here a secret, okay? We live in a natural world. We, don't live in, we exist over here. If anyone's in Christ, they're part of this world, the new creation, but our world is still here. When, we sat, when I sat with David and Regina Ptolemy three weeks ago to talk about cancer, he had just gotten the diagnosis, and obviously they're pretty trauma, traumatized from that diagnosis. And so he wanted to know, what's going on here? Why would God do this? And I said, okay, over here in the natural world, you're dealing with oncologists, internal medicine. You're dealing with chemo, radiation, statistical tables, probabilities. God doesn't care about that. To really answer that question, we have to move over into another world over here. The spiritual world, the new creation where everything theologically makes sense. That's why Job could finish when he finally got confronted by God. He said, I... I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And I said, we'll never understand it in this world. We have to be in this world to make sense of it. And Jesus is now transporting them from physical food to spiritual food. You all have a need. It's just that we've taught you to cover it up, to be distracted so you don't have to think about it. Don't cover it up. Be hungry. Be hungry. And see what the Lord does. See what the Lord says. When well, you see these kind of writings in Hebrew and Peter, long for the pure milk of the word. You can cultivate this. You can. You can make a decision. I'm going to start digging and learn what this means. So his answer to them is to stun them. He's now claiming to be the son of man. He's been talking about the son of man in third person, and now he brings it right here. I am that person. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. You still do not believe. So he's claiming to be the son of man. And what do they do? At this point, verse 41, the Jews began to grumble. It's a pattern all throughout scripture. It's what happens with us when we don't get our way. When we don't get the answer, what do we do? We automatically start to complain, don't we? We've talked about that lots of times. Lots of times in our church. This is our natural, this is our natural makeup as Christians in a broken world. That's what we've been taught, is how to complain. So they immediately go to grumbling, verse 41. And so here's what they say. They began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They're no longer, they're not upset because of the bread thing. They don't even get that. They're upset because he claimed to be coming down. And that's just repeated all throughout John. He claims uh, claims God as his father. And they get upset about that. They get upset about it. So what happens? He commands him, verse 43, stop grumbling. (laughs) Sounds like Paul. Quit your grumbling and complaining. Stop complaining. I just love that. Stop the grumbling. Verse 43, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's verse 44. When you get down to 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. There it is again, faith. I cannot persuade you into the kingdom. All the evidence in the world, it's not going to make a difference. Some of you heard my story. It took me three years of wrestling with this, with the Lord, to finally believe. I'm a skeptic. I'm, I'm a strong skeptic. I honestly don't trust pastors. I think I've checked 99% of everything a pastor said up front because I don't believe what they're saying. It took me three years. I never forget sitting on a beach and a lakefront in uh uh, Naval Nuclear Training Center in Orlando, Florida. And I was right at the very end of that three-year process. And I said, okay, so picture this. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to believe in God that I'm not sure I believe in, but I'm having a conversation with the God I'm not sure I believe in yet. Okay? it's just crazy how the world gets all messed up like that. I said, okay, if I place my faith in you, if, and now I know he's up there laughing. I didn't know at the time. If I place my faith in you, I'm going to give it wholeheartedly. Two conditions. You better be real or I'm going to be mad as hell. He said, okay. The second one, don't ever ask me to be a pastor. (laughs) Someday, if you want, I can tell you the story how that one got changed, but that was it, and so uh, I believed. I didn't see at that point that I was already believing or I wouldn't be having the conversation. You can't persuade somebody into the kingdom. You can't. They either believe or they don't. So he tells them to stop grumbling. Grumbling. Very truly I tell you, verse 47, the one who believes in me has eternal life. The one who believes in me, not the one who's convinced. The one who believes. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. See, this is an invitation. Are you hungry? You all are hungry. You still know it. Come and eat. Come and eat. This has become very important in just a few minutes when you celebrate communion. That's what communion is all about. The bread. Come and eat. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And then all of a sudden he stuns them again. He just, boy, he doesn't quit stunning them. In verse 53, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Wow. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real, is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Okay, now, as a community church with every denomination, this is one of those points if we're not careful, we're going to divide. Those of you that come from a higher church or more liturgical church, like Catholic or even Lutheran, you're going to have a different perspective than we have on communion. Well, how can we get away from that, given what he just said? Okay? Well, when you look at the I am statements, they're all, they're all metaphorical to communicate a truth. I am the door. Is Jesus really a door? I am the gate. Is he really a gate? Okay? And so, so Our church takes the position that these are metaphorical, but here's why, and you're going to hear it. But first of all, what did the apostles say, the disciples? On hearing this, they said, this is hard teaching. Verse 60, who can accept it? Why would they say that? I mean, first of all, they're a little confused. Why? Because Leviticus, remember Leviticus? For those of you that were here, do not drink the blood. Clear, clear, clear strong command with strong consequences. All the nations, they did what they wanted with the blood. And Jesus said, life is in the blood. Do not drink it. And the consequences were fatal if you did. No wonder they're stunned. You just said, unless I drink your blood, I can't be saved. By the way, this set the stage for some in the early world to think of Christians as cannibals because of this teaching. They didn't know what to do with it. They had to figure it out. Okay, what does it mean? Well, the disciples are clearly perplexed. So Jesus begins to move in a different realm with them to help them understand. Because right after this, he says, uh, aware that his disciples were grumbling, he said, does this offend you? Really? This offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And then he moves us into the discussion of the Spirit. The Spirit lives, gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. When you go through and read this and read the whole rest of it, he said, I'm not talking about my literal flesh. I'm talking about I give life because I am the bread of life. He's talking about the spiritual realm. They're trying to make sense of it in this natural world. And he's using language that they can understand. Now he's trying to move them over into this world, the spiritual world, so they can make sense of it. No, we're not cannibals. We're not. You can see why the, why the uh, Roman government, early on in Christians' history, began to call Christians atheists. Because they didn't, they didn't accept any of the gods. Of the Roman Empire. They believed in this Jesus guy. And so they were called atheists because they didn't believe in the accepted gods. Believe it or not, we were the original atheists. Okay? Because they have this teaching, and the disciples, when you read the apostolic fathers, the first century, the second generation Christians, they're wrestling through all of this to make sense and understand it. And they began to see, he's talking about a world in which we are now part of but it doesn't make sense to us. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 2, you have already been raised and seated at the right hand of Christ. What are you talking about? Okay? That's the world we live in. So all the questions that we have about why me? Why did I get cancer? I stood up before you six years ago when I had bladder cancer. I'm saying, I'm asking the same question. Why me? When I was in hospital with COVID, very sick, I'm asking, okay, Here we go again. Why me? David Ptolemy. Why me? Ryan O'Dell. Many people that came before them in our church, lots of people with cancer have come through here. Why? And they always ask the same questions. You see, when you ask those questions, now you're asking the questions over here, and this is where he's addressing them is in this world. No wonder they're perplexed. Because it only makes sense over here. So I believe... It is not the physical flesh and blood of Jesus that we eat and drink. That's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of sacrifice. So the question I want to ask this is that coming to Jesus, I can't convince you, I can't persuade you. I know that some of you here on that journey are not sure what you believe about Jesus. Listen to me. You can trust I've been a Christian 46 years. I'm not stupid. Once I made that decision, I've invested my life into learning everything I can about him. Put him to the test. Put him to the test. Don't ask to be persuaded. Step over into this world in faith and watch what happens. After 46 years, I no longer believe in coincidence at all. Zero. Zero. I no longer believe in fate, destiny, any of those. I believe in sovereignty. I believe in a God who loves me so much, he's going to make the decisions necessary to transform me into the image of his son and to use me in a world that desperately needs to know about him. And you've heard my stories every time I get on a plane, I have no idea what's going to happen. Again, okay, I'm comfortable with that. Relax. Cultivate that hunger. Be hungry. And for those of you that aren't sure, try faith. Believe. Trust. You gotta have faith in something. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. For your overwhelming graciousness to claim, for your son to claim, I am the bread of life. Come closer. It's an invitation. And Lord, we, we learn from that. We don't always feel it, but we learn from that that this is what we're made for. We're made to come to you and let you satisfy those deeper longings. Come close. Come close. I've heard you say that so many times. Come closer. Come closer. Thank you for your great sacrifice, in Jesus' name, amen.